Well, we've uh, made the point when we looked at Romans 1 and 2 that Romans is a letter that's divided very clearly into uh, sections. From chapters 1 to 8, you've got sort of pure theology, Paul explaining the theory of the gospel. And then from chapters 9 to 11, he talks about how Israel are the parade example of God's salvation by grace. And then from chapters 12 to 16, he's absolutely uh, practical. And yet those practical teachings that he gives us there are all based on the theory, if you like, or the doctrine or the theology, whatever you want to call it, which you've got here in chapters 1 to 8. So it's very densely written here um, in, in 1 to 8, where we are located at the moment. And yet he's bringing out a a wonderful thing. He's using legal language all the way through uh, chapters 1 to 8 to make the point that we stand, as it were, condemned in the, the judgment court of God right now. That our sins testify against us that we should be condemned. And yet, because we are in Christ, we are counted as if we are him, and the The guilty verdict is not only uh, taken away, but we are counted as if we are absolutely perfect and righteous and without spot. And the response of that, of course, is uh, a life lived in thankfulness to to God for for his grace that there is in, in Christ. And so this theme of grace, and in no way, as it were, clearing the guilty, Uh, continually reminding us of human sin and yet uh, also God's desire to save us by this act of counting us right declaring us right because we're in Christ Uh, this is what you've got here at this stage in the argument here in in chapter 3 where he's he's trying to bring us to realize the depth of our sinfulness so that we might appreciate the, the wonder of the fact that we have been saved because the wonder of salvation is only a wonder to be joyfully grasped and and responded to in practice if it is appreciated what we have been saved from and those who have no real personal sense of personal failure the urgency of the human position the seriousness of sin the reality of condemnation for sin uh, they have no backdrop against which to understand God's grace and the wonder of, of salvation now, here then, at the beginning of uh, chapter 3, you got in verse 3, talking about uh, the, uh, the Jews, some of them did not believe. They were without faith. And they are guilty, he says, of what he calls unbelief. And yet that does not affect, he says, the faith of God. Now, I understand that to be saying that even though Israel lost their faith in God, yet God did not lose his faith in them. And what does that mean? I think it means that he didn't lose his hope. His hope, this is the hope of the loving parent with the wayward child, the hope that sometime they would make good. Now, just notice that he accuses Israel here of what he calls unbelief and lacking in faith in God and yet God had faith in them. Yet Israel did not become atheists. Quite actually the opposite. And that's a a pretty scary thought for those of us who claim not to be atheists but to be believers. That you can claim belief in God when actually it is nothing but unbelief. 
And the bottom line is that unless we believe actually in his salvation, in his Son, uh, and in the salvation by grace that is in him, we eventually end up counted effectively as unbelievers. Now he he uses a again a judgment seat or judgment court kind of uh, scenario when he he says in verse four, "Let God be found true." That is uh, again a legal term, as so much of the section of Romans is, um, in a legal sense through legal kind of forensic uh, analysis. It's as if God is in the dark. And we are accusing God. And of course we'd say, well no, I'm not doing that. But that is the figure that he uses. That God has to be found true. And in fact every man a liar, that is all those that are accusing him are found to be lying. Because it is written that you, that is God, might be justified in your sayings, in your words. And might overcome or might prevail when you come into judgment. Now... Who is judging God? Who are these people that are lying? Well, as I see the whole uh, flow of the argument here, and uh, just looking at one or two verses in isolation won't give you that flow of the argument, but as I see the, the flow of the argument here, he's saying that, look, it is as simple as this, that we who are sinners, if we believe in God's word of promise, as Abraham did, as David did, we will be counted righteous. And therefore, we should be able to say and to feel in every fibre of our being that I am saved. That despite all my sin, he has said that if I am in Christ, then I am counted right. I am counted as if I am Jesus. And despite all my sin and failure, dysfunction, I really will be saved. I will live eternally And not only will I live eternally when Christ comes, but as we stand now, in the judgment presence of God, we are counted as if we are right with him. And yet we doubt that. We, by those doubts, are effectively calling God a liar, and we are bringing him into judgment. We are putting God in the dark, and we are standing in the witness box, or even in the, uh, in the seat of judgment, condemning him. And yet God forbid, Paul says, and God in the end will be declared true, will be found true, will be declared true by this judgment process, and in fact all the witnesses against him, that is all our doubts and niggling fears, that actually I will not be saved, we will be proven liars. And he he uses, as he does, very extreme language to to make the point. In the end, God will overcome when he is brought into judgment by us. And yet, it's like we said when we are talking about Romans 1 and 2, why all this talk about sexual perversion and and the, the very sort of worst kinds of human sin and failure? It's to sort of play a game with us to make us say, I may be a sinner, but I don't do that. And then, you know, as we we said when we looked at Romans 1 and 2, the whole tables are turned, but yes, you do, in essence. You are no better. And in fact, you are condemned because you tend to condemn those who do what you would consider to be the grosser kind of sins. And so it is here. Wait a minute, who's judging and condemning God? No, I wouldn't do that. 
I'm not saying uh, God is uh, God is a liar and, and that I'm witnessing against him in the witness box or that I, God forbid, would sit in the, in the throne of judgment upon God. But if we doubt his message of salvation, the simple, basic truth that we will be saved, we are actually doing that. When we think, is he really able to forgive me that? Will he really not hold this against me eternally? Will I really be saved? Can God really accept me after what I've done? Or, despite the fact that I'm, I'm so laid back in my response to him, and the case against God, which all those niggling doubts bring before us, that in the end will collapse. And so, you know, sort of matchless kind of um, logical sort of true uh, de force, he says in, in verse 5, Our unrighteousness actually commends the righteousness of God. I think he has David in mind there. He specifically only mentions David in, in chapter 4. Uh, but his idea is, I think, that David sinned so that God's righteousness would be uh, declared. God uses our sin and he uses our doubt to, as it were, persuade us more deeply that really, yes, my love is greater than your doubt and my love is greater than all your sin put together. Our unrighteousness, verse 5, commends the righteousness of God. And that Greek word for, for commend means literally to place beside. You've got the same word in Luke 9.32, that men, the men that stood with him, to stand with. So it's as if God and man come to stand together in that courtroom. Our unrighteousness stands off against his righteousness. And then the, role change, the roles change. Our doubts no longer accuse him, and he becomes the accuser. Because who can doubt? Beholding, as we do at this time, the death of Christ and the body of the, of the Lord Jesus there on the cross, and the empty tomb, who can doubt that we are wrong? That all those niggling doubts need not be. Because really and truly, if we are in him, we shall be saved. So then, God, however, for all that, is, is not true to say that God is, as it were, turning a blind eye to, to human sin. That he's like the Dobria uh, Dyodya, the, uh, in Russian, the, the, the kind uncle, the kind grandfather, who kind of looks the other way, the kind school teacher who pretends he didn't see. If that's how we see God and how, if you like, the, the mechanism of our salvation works out, then I don't think we will have that sense of wonder at all. God does take vengeance. Or, uh, it's, it's again a, a legal term, to judicially afflict. God is not unrighteous to do that. And he does do that. You just have to read through all the judgment which is written in the Bible to understand that God is like that. God will indeed take vengeance. But the wonderful thing is that because we are in Christ, then that will not apply to us. Because we are seen by him as his beloved son. And he describes this whole thing in verse 7 as the truth of God. That is the profound truth of verse 4. Let God be found true. 
the truth of God is that really he will save us that is the most sublime truth and ultimate truth which, which there is and we talk about in the truth and, and you know it should not be used in the sense of uh, well in our sort of little religious uh, club and community the ultimate truth of God is that you and I will be saved and that we really are counted as righteous and that in fact all our sin is in fact being somehow turned the other way so that actually God's grace in saving us despite of that sin as it were triumphs and, and, and glories that's I think the uh, the idea there behind behind verse 7 he, he says that God's truth this salvation that he will really work out for us abounds through my lie unto his glory now what is the lie I suggested that the lie that every man tells verse 4 every man is found a liar it is that niggling doubt that he can't save me that all this is a wonderful idea this idea of salvation by justification but it's not true for me now when he says in verse 7 why then, then am I judged as a sinner I think there he's not talking about God judging him it's a reference to how his critics of whom he had very many both within the brotherhood and outside it judged him as a sinner and I think it's rather like he says in 1 Corinthians 4.3 that the only judgment that's worth anything is God's and before God by his judgment I am counted right so therefore it matters nothing to me he says in Corinthians how people judge me and so it is I think he's got the same idea here and he goes on in, in verse, 18, uh, verse 8 to talk about we are slanderously reported and some affirm again legal language that, th- that we say when we don't say it let us do evil that good may come so he's saying that okay God has judged me and counted me right because I'm in Christ so what you want to say about me and how you want to judge me is laughable Corinthians 1 Corinthians 4 really makes this point in the context of all the nonsense he had from the Corinthians and it's the same here with what he was obviously up against in some context here and it's the same really in our lives because we are surrounded by critical looks snide implications in emails and whatever form of communication people are using on uh, social network working networks or whatever all the time we live life under the critical gaze of others and we are very aware of that probably over sensitive to it but the point is so what the only ultimate judgment is God's and I am right before him and what you think of me and your judgment of me frankly is laughable now if only we could get that clear in our minds so many people are paralyzed in their thinking, in their being, in their development as persons in, uh, before God, in their trading of their talents uh, in their spiritual growth, in their just normal psychological existence because of what others think and what others have said or might say and yet if we've got this clear in our minds that the only judgment worth anything is God's then you will not be held back all the time by it could be thought that people might think that people would say that so and so and so and so if I this that and the other that sort of paranoia uh, which so totally 
limits the behaviour of us as, as free persons, which it should, which they should be, is, is now no more. Notice that he says. Uh, then in uh, in verse 9 are we in better case than them than they and again it's uh, it's legal language he's saying do we have a better legal case than uh, th- than them that that is than, than those who are criticizing us no in in one sense we are all sinners, and in that sense we and our critics are thereby united. And yet the difference is that those who have truly believed in Jesus and are counted righteous in him, the case changes. Now he goes on in the rest of this uh, chapter to quote some pretty tough verses from the Old Testament about uh, serious uh, sinners, people uh, verse 13, whose throat is an open sepulchre, their tongues use deceit, their feet are swift to shed blood, verse 15, etc. No fear of God before their eyes, verse 18. And in verse 10, the summary of all that is that there is none righteous, no, not one. And he's applying this extreme language to us, to all of us. No one has been declared righteous, no, not one. And in fact, all this uh, horrible stuff he's talking about there is therefore true of us all to some extent. Now, he's done the same, as I said, in Romans 1 and 2, where he talks about the, the most extreme forms of human sin as human beings would judge them, and basically turns it around and says, that is all of us. So then, we have to recognize then that we really are sinners and if we squirm and wiggle and fight against that by saying all the time that no yeah okay yeah I'm a sinner sure but I don't do that I'm not that bad then you see the whole point of all this is lost and here we are the breaking of bread and this is I think a wonderful opportunity to be convicted again of human need of human sin of your sin and to see it as it were, taken away for sure in, in, the, uh, in the grace of God through the work of the Lord Jesus. Just incidentally, verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. I think that phrase starts with Eliphaz in Job 15 verse 35. And he uses that phrase about the uh, what he by implication in the context who he considers to be a minority of very sinful people who are there in this world and those words of jo- of eliphaz there in job 15 are quoted in isaiah 59:4 about the whole nation of israel and that in turn is quoted here about the whole human race so i think there is in the bible a progressive realization of human sinfulness and that which has happened, as it were, historically, that path that I think is, is revealed there from Job to Isaiah to Romans, is, I think, the path each of us go through as individuals of being convicted of, of human sinfulness. 
that really we are in a serious situation. And as I say, it is only that which can lead us to the realization of the wonder of it all. And he, he ends up the section really in uh, Romans 3.23 where he says, All have sinned and fallen short or come short of the glory of God. And the Jewish writings, particularly in the uh, Apocalypse of Moses, claim that Adam came short of the glory of God by his sin in, in Eden, but that the righteous Jew would not do that. The righteous Jew does not come short of the glory of God. That was only Adam who did that. One of Paul's themes in Romans, or certainly 1-8, to uh, is that Adam is every man. You've got it most clearly in chapter 5, verse 12, that in Adam we all sinned. Um, that Adam was, was not uh, this terrible sinner that we should wag the finger at and say, nah, I'm not going to be like him. And it's not the time to demonstrate this, but um, you can go through Romans 1-8 to and see, if you read the right commentaries, how, uh, how Paul is alluding all the time to Jewish writings which were holding up Adam as the awful sinner who uh, is not us and holding up Israel or the righteous Israelite uh, as the one who who was not like Adam and all the time Paul is saying no, Adam is every man we are all in him and really the idea that well it's not fair that we suffer because of what Adam did in a sense the whole argument about suffering that it's not fair this is really again I think uh, a minimization of our position as as sinners and how if we were in Eden we would have done the same and it's no good saying we would not have done because God obviously knows that we would have done so again we, we would be uh, arguing with, uh, with God there now God I think realizes our difficulty in believing this simple truth of his salvation And that is one reason why Jesus died, in the way that he did, in the public way that he did on the cross. Verse 25, God set him forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare, to publicly declare, to set forth. And this is, again, the the language of the law court uh, of setting forth evidence, setting forth in front of everybody who's uh, in participating in the, in the process to set forth the, the evidence. So then, it almost seems to suggest then that um, the blood of Christ, his death upon the, upon the cross, is brought forth as a proof in the court case that actually we really have been declared right. Verse 24, we who are all sinners have been justified freely. We have been counted right by his grace through Christ. And where's the evidence for that? There we are standing there in the court and the the, the judgment is that, well done, you are right. You are declared right when just a moment ago you were declared in the wrong. And then why? On what basis? The basis is the blood of the Lord Jesus that has been set forth on the, uh, the mercy seat, you, that's how you could read this word propitiation. Uh, it doesn't have to mean that, but it, it could mean that. Um, and his blood has been set forth there for us to see. And it's as if it's presented there in public. As I say, God could have saved 
us any way he chose, but he chose this very public way of crucifixion of his son. I think almost to, well it's uh, multifactorial I I suppose, but uh, one of the reasons I think was to demonstrate to us who doubt his salvation that once and for all, for all time, we really have been saved because of what he has done. And so verse 28, we conclude, and this is again a legal term, the summing up of the court case, we conclude... We wrap the case up like this. The summary of the case is that a man is declared right by God on account of his faith in God's grace and the blood of Christ. Simple as that. And then he brings out one implication of of that, one of many. Um, Verse 30, it is one God, or as the RV says, if so be that God is one. Uh, That it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile or who you are, This wonderful truth applies to every human being who can believe. And so therefore all human barriers and boundaries between groups of people in one sense come down. Because the wonder of it all and the urgency of our position as sinners means that that difference between us goes away. Just as if a bunch of people from hugely different uh, circumstances in life are put together suddenly in a difficult situation, facing death. It could be they're trapped somewhere and oxygen is running out. It could be they're in a concentration camp. It could be that uh, they all suffer the same unusual illness. They are all bound together with each other simply by their situation. And when they are all uh, cured or released from that situation, there is therefore and thereby a bond between them, which certainly didn't exist before. Now, okay, Paul is talking here specifically with reference to uh, Jew and Gentile, but the principle, I think, continues uh, with us, because we also uh, have these boundaries and barriers between us, and they come crushing down, crushing down, insofar as we realize our need and we realize the wonder of the fact of our redemption and that's why Jesus could pray in John 17 that the unity that his death would create between persons would be so profound and would be so unusual that it would of itself convert people to him and and to God and bring about the, the glorification of God and that is really what should be going on in our lives, and so as we focus or refocus ourselves now upon Him there, upon this uh, blood that was set forth, that was laid out as it were in the courtroom, um, this declaration of evidence that this is really the case. Sure, we struggle with this, we struggle with this no end, but in the end, any niggling doubt that we have, that I will not be saved, is in a sense a putting of God in the dock. And every man shall be found a liar, without any question. And sure, we may go through the process of Abraham that we, we read in, in chapter 4, that you know his, his faith was not instantaneous. It might sound like that in Genesis 15, but you have to insert a few gaps there. When he's told, so shall your seed be, three words in Hebrew, three words, let's keep to the English, so shall your seed be. 
I think there was a gap after God said that, and it could have been ten seconds or ten hours afterwards that Abraham, we're told, believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. And during those, whatever it was, ten seconds or ten hours, Paul says that Abraham, in hope, believed against hope. He looked at his body, which was impotent. He was not weakened in faith. He didn't fix his mind upon the fact that his own body was dead. We're now in chapter 4, verse 19. Nor yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. And so often we allow the apparent weakness or incapacity of others to become a barrier to our own faith. But he, as it were, persuaded himself and was persuaded by God. He staggered not. In chapter 4, verse 20, and incidentally, that is Greek diakrino, to judge. He would not judge God by, by saying, nah, this is not true. It ties in with what we said earlier about putting God in the dark. But chapter 4, verse 20, he was strong, or he became strengthened in his faith. It's as if his own faith struggled, but he tried to make himself stronger in it, and God strengthened him in that he he waxed strong it's all the language of a process he became fully assured this again is the language of a process kept on thinking of those three words so shall your seed be and in the end verse 21 he was fully persuaded now that is the process that we go through whether it took Abraham 10 seconds or 10 hours whether it takes us 10 days or or 10 years or or a lifetime it is that process that we each go through and Abraham is so out example because the same uh, basic truths that were taught to him are the essence of the gospel today the gospel was preached to Abraham Galatians 3 verse 8 Uh, the simple truth was you want to be saved you want to live forever you want to have a wonderful future whereby you are a blessing to others whereby you will live eternally in uh, a wonderful situation on earth? Do you want to be counted righteous when you are clearly not? Do you want to have a situation brought about where your own, the weakness of your own body and your own nature and that of your wife, those near and dear to you, is taken away? Believe, Abraham, and I'll give it to you. And Abraham believed it. Now, the gospel is not difficult. It's not a long, complicated set of theology. The same essence is in our hands today. And we must believe it. And we do believe it. And keep remembering that Paul is writing not to a bunch of people he's trying to persuade to become Christians in Rome. He's writing to those who have already believed. And he's saying, look, just think about the implications of what you did when you were baptised. This is what it all means. You are declared right. And all this sort of intense theology and all this uh, very uh, tight reasoning that he's using here is for one thing, really, in the end. It's to persuade people of the good news. Just simply believe it. He's arguing all the time against that nagging doubt within the human mind that says, no. Okay for Abraham, David, okay for you, okay for Paul but not for me I don't know if I shall be saved and he's using every intellectual weapon spiritual weapon 
logical argument to to bring us to to that crushing realization that wow it is actually all wonderfully true and i shall live forever by god's grace